0: I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Peg Tyre is the best-selling author of The Trouble with Boys, and until recently was a senior writer at Newsweek, specializing in social trends and education. She has won numerous awards, including a Pulitzer Prize, a Clarion Award, and a National Education Writers Association Award. She lives in New York City with her husband, novelist Peter Blouner, and their two sons. And today, we're going to hear about the re-release of her crime novel, Strangers in the Night.
1: Welcome, Peg. Nice to be here. Your
0: website includes a piece titled True Stories. And beneath that are some really interesting little tidbits. And so I have to know more. Oprah commissioned me to write an article about attempting to find God. I did. She
1: did. And I did. Oh, uh, have fun. Yeah, it was great. They said, we want to pay you. This is back in the great days of magazines where people would do stuff like this. Editors would do stuff like this. They were like, we'd like to pay you to write a piece about finding God. And I was like, well, what's the budget for travel? Immediately thinking, India. I really want to go to Mm -hmm. India. I was like, India. And they were like, no, that's beyond our budget. So I said, oh, recalibrating. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so I went on an amazing trip to Colorado with a group of women who were women ice climbers and uh, rock climbers. And we did sort of an expedition. And one of the things I'm really afraid of is heights. And so for me, climbing rocks was really, mm, it was a spiritual experience because one of the things it makes you do is really focus on how you're going to get through the next nanosecond. And I found Mm. that to be very uplifting and very important to my development, my spiritual development. So I made the case that that was my pursuit of God. And I also do think of God as the great outdoors. Also, you distilled
0: a book you wrote into a viral post about boys in school that got 3 million hits
1: in 48 hours. Yeah, that was a surprise. So I wrote cover stories for Newsweek back when Newsweek was a big deal. And we had a cover every year before Christmas about Jesus. And it was a huge seller. And we always sold ads against it that paid for probably our salaries for the rest of the year. And it was just, it was like, what the secrets of Mary, what Jesus thought, like, I don't know who wrote Mm -hmm. that story. It wasn't me. It was a religion writer, but it was always the Jesus cover. And, um, They assigned me, after a career covering terrorism and crime, they assigned me to be on the education beat, and one of my assignments was to look at how girls are doing in school. So I looked at the data, and what I saw is that boys are really struggling. By every measure, boys are doing much worse than girls in school. So I had grown up on the whole Carol Gilligan, girls finding their voice, not getting called on in school. So I wrote a pretty counterintuitive story to say, actually, guys are doing terribly now more than ever. And this cover story was bigger than Jesus. Like it was bigger (laughs) than our Jesus cover. So I was like swanning around New York talking on the Today Show and Good Morning America and blah, blah, blah. Nice. And then um, I wrote a book about it. And as the book was coming out, I condensed this book into a viral post and Newsweek. I was leaving Newsweek by then, but they posted it and it went crazy and I was, I didn't even understand what viral was at that point. Like nobody really did, right? It was the beginning of the digital time. So the book became a bestseller. I don't think as a result of that post, but I think it helped.
0: We had a Newsweek subscription for most of my life that
1: I yeah, that I can recall. On it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, it was a hard place to work. It was a lot of egos, a lot of a lot of egos, yeah. a lot of really smart people. And I'm glad I worked there, but I'm glad I stopped working there also.
0: it's a great experience, right? Great experience to be
1: looking at in the rearview mirror.
0: Another one of your experiences, you once did an interview in a hospital delivery
1: room. I did. I was covering crime and there was a car thief and he died in police custody. And it was really before people started looking hard at those issues of how particularly poor Black and Latino kids are treated, young people are treated by the police. But Mm. we knew it was kind of a rough justice where he was from. And so I spent about three weeks running with car thieves trying to find people who knew this kid and who were maybe with him the night he got arrested, this car thief. The the official story was that he had died of an asthma attack. Mm. So... It was really hard because they were sort of a loose confederacy of, you know, criminals and young people and very disorganized. And I finally found a person who was with the guy who was killed that night that he was killed. And I knocked on his door and I he I said I'm looking for you and he said I'm you know you found the right person and I said were you there that night he said I was and I said so tell me what did you see and he said the cops rear cuffed him and then stood on his neck meanwhile his wife is like in and out of like the room she's going honey honey like honey I think it's time and I was like are you serious and he was like yeah I was there and I was like okay and she was like honey honey and I was like okay she's like I gotta get my wife to the, to the maternity the emergency room and I said okay I'll drive you but you need to keep talking to me and he was like okay so I loaded them in my car and I drove them and to my eternal shame, she went in. Right. And I was like, no, no, I have to get this on tape. Tell me again. You know, I kept making him tell me over and over and over again. And, you know, a better person might have been like, you're having a baby like this whole wait." But I was not that person at that time. I like to think I am that person now. But I did interview him while his wife was actually giving birth to their first child. And I'm sure that was a deficit, you know, a problem in their marriage for years to come. You know, at the end of the day, there was some justice for that kid. Five police officers were indicted and one actually was convicted. They knocked it down, as they do, to a misdemeanor, even though he's dead. But we did get some. We did. I mean, there was some questions asked and there was a trial and there was efforts to revisit this, which I felt like that was my job. I was very fortunate in the newspaper that I worked on was uh, the editor. They called it the tabloid in a tutu because we were in direct competition with the metro section of the New York Times and also two tabloids, the Daily News and the, and the New York Post. And we had among any of our competitors a very racially mixed group of reporters. The editors did mm-hmm. that. They sought out talented black and Latino and Asian reporters and hired them. And they brought real perspective to the newsroom. So when little white girls like me would write about <laughs> projects, right? They would say, hey, the projects, I grew up in the projects. That's called home. Okay. So don't, that's called NYCHA houses. And like we're entitled to live there and don't be so pejorative about it. And they, you know, I got schooled, right? It made us not not an awoke cancel way, but mm-hmm. in a way that like this is our city. All of us, we share the city and it's not just one perspective that's right. It was very contentious and sometimes very heated and I think sometimes very painful. It's one of those experiences, like you said, about working for Newsweek. It's hard and mm-hmm. would
0: you want to go through the process of it again, but you come out a different person. You come out
1: better. Honestly, I have friends from that time that are still my Good, good friends. I like my brothers and sisters. We just were forged in a cauldron of trauma, <laughs> I think, covering crime during the crack epidemic. And we're still very close.
0: Among your other true stories, and I mentioned this in your intro, you are part of a group that won a freaking Pulitzer Prize. That's yeah. amazing.
1: It was amazing. Please tell us about it. It was spot news reporting. It was a subway accident. A motorman got drunk and he took the number four train down and he couldn't decide whether to go on the local track or the express. And so he split the difference and just rammed into the, into the platform. And I think seven people died. I was <sighs> pregnant at the time and I had to go down into the hole, like into the subway with all these like horrible toxic smoke billowing out. And I was like, oh, this doesn't... This doesn't seem like a good idea. And it was a team effort. One person in on our team found the motorman in the Bronx walking on the side of the road, drunk as a skunk. And our headline was the motorman was drunk. It mm-hmm. wasn't even anywhere near my best work that year. It was an amazing year for me. I was, I'm was i laughing because my niece is pregnant and she left work after, I think, her, in the beginning of her first trimester. And she was like, it's really hard to work. And I was like, I want a Pulitzer when it's pregnant. Like it was like, I was covering homicide. And so I was doing like a lot of investigative work at that time. And so when we won the Pulitzer, I couldn't have been more thrilled. I couldn't have been more thrilled, but also I kind of thought the work that gets recognized is not always the best work that you do. And that's just how, how it works. I will say that I brought my baby. I was lying on the couch, nursing my baby, thinking my career was over when I got the call that we had won the Pulitzer and I brought my baby to the party, which was like the next day. And there is a classic picture that I keep on my wall that is a picture of like all these great reporters, you know, who became sort of legendary reporters and me sitting in the middle with my little tiny, like three week old baby who then actually grew up and went to journalism school. (laughs) Oh, wow. So are they a journalist now? Stuck with it for about four years, but mama, don't let your babies grow up to be journalists. (laughs) Listen, it was a different business when I was coming up Mm. You know, I think that he, I think he got what he needed from it. Uh, And uh, I think it's good that he left. Uh, Journalism is not, it's different now. It is.
0: Like, I just want to go backward. I want to go back to what it, what it used to be the old days of, you know, Dan Rathers and the Cronkites and the turning over rocks that no one would see otherwise, you know?
1: Well, to be fair. Those golden days were not so golden if you were poor or black or black, right, black, right 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 cuz that was or female right because right. those were like you know the the women's pages were about cooking <laughs> not about like yeah. reproductive rights right <laughs> and so yeah. the good old days had their limitations but I will tell you what happened was not the 2000s but the it was really Craigslist it was really the business model changed from advertising so advertisers mm. went digital moved away from newspapers. And so the business model shifted to subscriptions. So and eyes, at first, before subscriptions, it was eyeballs, traffic. And yeah. so the, the entire, all of journalism, because the business model was basically taken away, became a traffic machine. And it, I think journalism began to be an outrage retailer. So every headline was geared to provoke outrage in you and to make you feel Mm -hmm. like I agree with that or I don't agree with that, right? Which is not really what I got into it for. Mm -hmm. I got to be a chronicle of my time. And I think that we did that during the crack epidemic for sure with the newspaper I worked at. I'm not interested in being an outrage machine and I'm not interested in engaging with journalism in that way either. I work in a job where I'm an advocate for education equity and I strongly believe in that, but that's not journalism. That's different.
0: I think it still has a purpose. I just don't think it gets used enough for the right thing, you know?
1: Well, it's not about community. I mean, Mm -hmm. at at its best, it's really about informing a community so they can be better citizens, so they can engage productively in democracy. And whether you're covering crime or you're covering politics or you're covering municipal corruption, like taxpayers need to know where their money is being misspent. And no one is going to do that. No one is going to volunteer that. So it just takes annoying people, journalists, to ferret that stuff out, and a business model that supports them because it takes time and it's thankless, and everyone hates you. And but it's very necessary for democracy and for the clean functioning of our of our government systems. Mm-hmm. But we don't really have that now. So yeah, sadly, have, yeah, sadly,
0: you're a storyteller for a different purpose now.
1: Well, I had the privilege of joining a foundation, so we run an incubator for education nonprofits. It's been really rewarding work. And at the same time, I've been writing about social trends and education for The Atlantic and The New York Times and Politico. Less and less, though, as I get more and more immersed in the world of philanthropy. You know, if you cover crime, as I did for so many years, you realize that, like, what people say? How could this have happened? And I would ask the other question: Why doesn't this happen more? It's so frustrating how we treat people who are poor in this country is mm-hmm. so frustrating, and they have so young people have so few opportunities, and so many doors are closed to them, and so much desperation is placed on them that mm-hmm. it's a wonder that people aren't more violent and more asocial. Really gave me a sense of what fairness looks like. It gave me a sort of mission in my life to like really address those things if I can, you know, a tiny way. Gives you a totally different perspective. Yeah. I mean, am used by people who say that poor people need financial literacy. Okay. So people that I know who are, are low income, have low income lives. Okay. They can tell you, Five different places where they can get a can of black beans and exactly what the cost of that can is. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know any middle class person Mm -hmm. who has that in their mind. They walk around with an encyclopedia of budget numbers and they know when the phone bill's coming and they know approximately how much it's going to be and they know how much they owe from last month. There's like all these massive calculations going. They don't need financial literacy. They need more money. Mm -hmm. They need minimum wage. They need a union. Okay. Yeah. That's no, paying. no, It's just Peg talking about my politics. Like, <laughs> <I'm paying. Peg. laughs> you, spend, you spend a lot of time with people and you realize, like, these are good people. You know, yeah. they just they're just getting the short end of the stick. There's so many things we assume. Having covered crime, listen, some, there are some bad people. Well, yeah. I mean, I've been to Marion and maximum security prison and interviewed, you know, mass murderers. And there's a lot of people who are, you know, you meet them and you realize there's like on the old moral Geiger counter, there is zero clicks there. There's But there
0: are people that are that are just as bad that aren't in prison on Wall Street.
1: Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, this is very popular to say, but I think Jack Welsh was probably the person who gave me, who skeeved me out the most. And I've interviewed <laughs> mass murderers. I didn't think Jack Welsh had any clicks on the old moral Geiger counter. And wow. look at Elon Musk. Like, <laughs> that person seemed like that person has like a a, a moral, moral principles, the kind of moral principles that you and I come from. I don't think so. But Mm-mm. maybe. No. Speaking of crime. The book is about crime. This is a crime book. Yeah. You wrote a crime novel 27 years ago. Yeah, I was covering crime and covering during a time when the crack epidemic was ripping through the city and there was 2,000 homicides a year. Now there's about 300, I think, a year and everyone's like, but there was a lot. Every neighborhood was affected. I was covering this weird war that I got to come home from every night and have dinner and then go out every morning back into this weird war. and no one really knew what to do. It was an epidemiological problem. People were addicted to crack. And if, when they were addicted to crack, they would sell their grandmother for more crack. Mm-hmm. It was just so, so, and money was sluicing through these neighborhoods because there was such a high demand and people were horribly addicted to this. People giving away their children. I mean, it was awful. Mm-hmm. And a lot of crime against children, which was just brutal. I wrote these two books uh, in strangers in the night in the midnight hour. And they were really about a woman who's had my job, strangely. And it was a lot about processing and they're fun. Like they're intense and they're gritty, but they're also kind of romantic. And they're also about being a woman. It was a very, very male dominated world. And it was a little bit about negotiating that and still trying to believe in love.
0: Cool. Well, how does this come about that it's being re-released now 27 years later?
1: It's just such a wonderful experience. It's just like you wake up and you realize like, oh, I know how to fly. It's kind of great. It's kind (laughs) of odd. Very emotional for me. Jeremy Wagner, who's the head of Dead Sky Publishing. My husband is a novelist and he Mm -hmm. my husband became a sort of mentor to Jeremy and ultimately Jeremy read our work, read all of Peter's work and then my work. He said, oh my God, I'm starting a publishing house. I want to publish, republish books that are out of print. I think they're so amazing. And I was like, wow. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, congratulations. That's Thank that's you. a huge compliment. It is. One of the characters is a journalist, like you said. What do you think, you know, one of the biggest things that has changed since that journalist was doing that job
1: back then and now? Well, well journalism doesn't exist like that anymore. Well, yeah. You don't like run around and go to sites where people were killed hour after hour on a sunday morning which is what my job was and say like hey what happened here <laughs> that was my job knock 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 oh i'm really sorry for your loss what happened here was it drug related blah, blah, blah. you know like that was yeah. day after day after day so that doesn't exist anymore i don't think the same level of sexism exists anymore i hope the hell it doesn't it was a mm-hmm. very rough and tumble world it was a very exciting job but it, it was rugged and the level of predatory behavior on the part of people who I would meet professionally was think I mean, it was just ridiculous when the me too movement happened I was kind of shocked because I was like oh you mean that that stuff oh my god that was like my job description you know like tolerating that crap was like part mm-hmm. of like every day of my professional life and realizing that that's not going to happen anymore I just was like so proud of our young women And so proud of the young men who supported them and just said, this is enough of this already. It's terrible. Like, women are not conditional in the workplace. We need to stop Mm -hmm. being bigs. So that was great. Yeah. So yeah, a lot has changed. It's a little bit of a time capsule. But I think there's some things about the book that young women will relate to and people who are ambitious will relate to that sort of frenetic energy of like wanting to make it that sort of like looking for love, the idea of looking for love in the wrong places. And (laughs) also the... I think some of the gritty urban details are a little bit back for New York for sure. And for many urban areas getting a little tougher.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When you look back though, and you, you look at that frenetic pace that you were, that you were taking, when was it? And I I know you said like the Pulitzer prize was not like the story that you felt was your best. When, what was it? What was the story you wrote when you felt like, all right, I've made it. This is something I'm, I'm so dang proud of.
1: You know, it's funny because when I was doing them, I was just doing my best. And it always seemed like it failed. Like it always seemed like it wasn't as good as it should have been. Actually, that's not true. There was some mornings where I'd wake up like on a, after having really killed myself on a story and I'd see the paper would land on my stoop and I'd go out and I, the sun would be shining and I'd open it up and I'd read my story. And I would think, okay. Not terrible, but like a lot of what I thought, like I was holding myself to a really high standard and it's only now when people get in touch with me to be in like their documentaries about fentanyl mm-hmm. and stuff, because I wrote a lot of early yeah. stuff fentanyl. They send me pieces that I wrote and I think, damn, this is good. Like <laughs> This is really good. But at the time, I just wanted better, better. I wanted to be better. I was really pushing myself really hard. So I don't think there was much satisfaction in the moment. And really, it wasn't until, you know, really in my 50s that I was writing pieces that I thought were pretty great. And I was just like, okay, this is given the conditions that I'm writing this under, given the editorial conditions and the publication I'm working for, this is solid. I just took more of a breath, had more perspective.
0: With the true crime industry, the podcast and the self-made journalist, however you want to be you know, armchair journalist, I guess. How do you reconcile that evolution?
1: You know, I am interested. I get why people are fascinated by that. Totally get it because it's fascinating. can be fascinating. Having done this work professionally, I'm sometimes like, look at these true crime things and I think, oh, that's super lazy. Like... (laughs) That's just, you're just like reciting what other people have written in the tabloids. Like somebody, mm-hmm. actually that's somebody's profession and you're just kind of being a parasite on that for your entertainment. So I go back and forth on it. Sometimes I think really awesome. And sometimes I think mm-hmm. there are some really interesting true crime stories. And then sometimes I think, oh, that's just lazy. And then can I have my 40 minutes back, please? Like <laughs> this is a waste, you know, like really, I read those stories and you added nothing. So I don't know. So yeah. I I feel mixed about it, I guess. What
0: has writing taught you about yourself?
1: You know, I don't think I know what I think until I write it. Like sometimes my feelings are really diffuse and my perspectives are really diffuse and strange even to me. And so it helps me like sort through my thinking and it makes me think more precisely and with more clarity. Sometimes I'm writing about things and I realize I don't care about this at all until so I'm not going to write I'm not gonna write about this, and I'm not gonna think about this. Like it's just kind of, I, it just through that process emerges, like a, sort of who I am in a way. So I'm grateful for that. Are you gonna write any more fiction at this point? I'm not sure. I, I have another book coming out, a reissue of the second book, but I tell you, it's been very emotional for me to reread these and to bring them out, have them out, and have them find new readers. And I don't know if I hear from people and they like them, maybe I will write another one.
0: Do you have any advice for new writers?
1: I do. No one is asking you to write. No one's waiting for you to write. No one is going to say like, it's time for you to sit down and write now. That is about you. You should get on it. No one cares about it. No one writes, but don't act like people are going to like welcome this. Okay. It's not like that. It's like looking at a piece of marble and banging your head against it instead of carving it. It's so hard to do. And it's so beautiful when you do it.
0: To learn more, visit pegtire.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.